0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. Uh, for those of you who I haven't met yet, my name is Caleb. I get to be one of the pastors here. It's quite a privilege, as is opening up God's Word with you this morning. Um, you know, as a student, uh, you would have never thought I was going to be a pastor. Like the least likely uh, guy that uh, that you would think. More on that some other time. Uh, but I was actually really interested in business as a student. And one of the things that was often emphasized in business classes was the importance of a mission statement. Okay, Mission statements are vital to organizations because they help employees see the value of their work. Okay, so they give clear reasons why specific tasks benefit a larger goal. Okay, they bring meaning to people's daily labors. Most successful companies, especially ones with a good work culture, have a solid mission statement that functions in the organization Now, we're not going to do a business seminar here today. I've already exhausted my knowledge on the subject. But I bring this up because as we continue through the book of Ephesians, we arrive at the topic of marriage today in Ephesians 5. And one of the most important questions we can ask about marriage is, what is God's mission statement for marriage? What's God's mission statement for marriage if we don't get God's mission for marriage, we're going to fill in the void and make up our own, likely adapting it from the missions culture provides. Okay? Culture has given two mission statements primarily over the years. Uh, one comes from traditional culture and one comes from modern culture. Okay? so For centuries and in many parts of the world today, Marriage has been viewed primarily as an economic or a social arrangement, okay? A public institution for the common good, okay? So build a strong family so that you can build a strong and stable society. The emotional and intellectual needs of spouses are secondary to the survival of the marriage because for society to survive, the marriage must survive, So traditional culture exalts society because it says that marriage is all about us. Modern culture has assigned quite a different mission to marriage. It says marriage is all about me. The point of marriage is self-realization. It's not a public arrangement for the common good. It's a private arrangement for my individual satisfaction. So this uh, mission of marriage that modern culture provides us leaves most of us single and longing, even feeling incomplete, and longing for a soulmate, or, or married, and at least tempted to wonder, did I find my soulmate? See, the modern mission for marriage exalts the individual because it says marriage is all about me. It's all about the individual. The marriage mission you adopt will bring shape to your whole relationship. It's like a set of glasses that you put on. Every detail of your marriage will be seen through these lenses. So, what's the mission of your marriage? What lenses are you looking at your marriage through? Or what, what lenses are you looking at other marriages through? If it's the modern or the traditional lenses, God's calling you to trade it in for a new prescription today. Today, he's going to call us to embrace a third option. Not mainly a marriage that's, that's, that's about me and not a marriage that's primarily about us and society, but marriage that's primarily about him. Okay, because according to the Bible, the mission of marriage is mainly about Jesus God didn't make marriage to exalt the individual. God didn't make marriage to exalt society. God made marriage to exalt his son. Marriage is about Jesus. And it's only by putting on these glasses that we're going to get the true callings and motivations of marriage. Now, there are many married people in here today, but there is probably just as many, maybe more, who are not Married. But this topic applies to all of us, even if it's really a painful topic to talk about. Okay, if you're, if you're single and you're desiring marriage, God wants to prepare you. If you're called to be single or if you're single not by choice, maybe through the death of a spouse or divorce, God wants to speak to you. I'm not sure of all the ways he wants to use this text today, but I know this. Marriage is beautiful, but it's also very challenging. And if you have friends that are married, coworkers, friends, family members, they need all the help and encouragement and support from you that they can get. And you're gonna be a better friend to marriage, that those people who you love's marriages, if you grasp what God is telling us today. Okay, and finally, just watching marriage as it's intended is aimed by God to bless all its spectators if you're looking at it through the right lenses it's it's calculated to bless all its spectators. So as we open up and read god's word, believe that this is god's word to you and for you this morning we're going to start uh, in verse eighteen, ephesians five verse eighteen because These first few verses, though not the text we're focusing on, provide some vital context to uh, our verses. So I'm going to start in verse uh, 18. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word to you and for you and for me this morning. It tells us the mission of marriage is all about Jesus. And this mission gives meaning and motivation to the specific callings of husbands and Wives. Okay, there are three broad callings for married people. Three aims of marriage that we need to embrace to make our marriages all about Jesus marriage as witness, marriage as service, and marriage as resistance. Okay, so the three broad callings of marriage that we need to embrace if we're going to make marriage about Jesus are marriage as witness. Marriage as service and marriage as resistance. We're going to hit marriage as witness first, okay? Because the most striking thing about this passage is that Paul goes back to the very beginning, to God's institution of marriage in the Garden of Eden. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and a mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, he's quoting Genesis two there. And he says this about it. He says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so listen, this isn't just me saying this is most striking. The inspired writer of scripture is saying this mystery is profound. God has a, had, a, had a hidden purpose in marriage that's now been revealed with the coming of Jesus for our understanding and our enjoyments. What's, what's the profound mystery, Paul? That the age-old institution of marriage research refers to something beyond itself. That all along it's been a signpost pointing to something, something deeper and more meaningful. Paul says it refers to Christ and the church. And by this, what he means is that the special relationship between, between a husband and a A wife is a real life, flesh and blood display of the covenant-keeping love of Jesus for his people. Marriage is witness. And let's be clear. Jesus didn't love and gather people to teach us what marriage is like. God made marriage to teach us what his love for his people is like. It's like a living parable. How how does marriage display the love of Jesus for his people? Well, the the movements that I just read from Genesis 2 are the same movements as the gospel. You guys know what, what marriage is. Marriage takes place when a man leaves his father and his mother and comes and holds fast to his wife. That's covenant language, hold fast. He holds fast to his wife and the two become one flesh. Probably talking about sex there, but it's not talking about just sex. It's talking about everything. A person, an individual human person, leaves home, and with another individual person, a miracle happens. The two become one. It's all-encompassing, not just sex. It's all-encompassing, all life. Two lives become one life. That's marriage. And doesn't that just sound like the gospel? Because in the gospel, Jesus leaves his father. Why? To come get his bride, to whom he says, nothing will snatch you out of my hands. Nothing in all creation can separate you from my love. Jesus leaves his home in order to hold fast in covenant to his bride, to whom he becomes One with. So you see, marriage, like nothing else in creation, is designed as a signpost, witnessing to the covenant keeping love of Jesus to his people, the church. Marriage as witness is the foundational calling of marriage. I start here at the end of our text and I work backwards because if we don't get this, the other marriage callings won't have the same meaning. They won't. Have the same significance. So I'll say it again. Okay, the ultimate mission of marriage is about Him, it's about Jesus. And that's why the foundational calling of marriage is to witness to Him, to witness to the covenant keeping love of Jesus for His people, His bride, His church. Okay, marriage is witness. If you're married or you get married in the future, you're like an actor or an actress cast in a movie or a play of a great novel. Okay, in this case, actors don't join the cast to write their own script. Okay, the novel has been written. The actor joins to do their part to bring the old story to life. Okay, the script of marriage in a sense is already written. And when we get married, we sign up to act out the script of the story of Jesus and his bride. It's very different than what our culture tells us marriage is, both traditional culture and modern culture. Marriage is not primarily about building a good and stable society. It's not primarily about self-fulfillment. Those things are important. And hear me, they result from good marriages, but they're secondary. Marriage is about Him. Our calling is to witness to Him and His love for us. And this is good news. It's good news to those of you who feel unfulfilled and disappointed in your marriages this morning. And it's good news for married couples who haven't been able to have children for whatever reason and are tempted to maybe think, my marriage is second tier. My marriage is incomplete. Both of these things are already very painful. There's tremendous suffering if you're here, but listen, don't add to your suffering by telling yourself your marriage is a failure. These aren't the main reasons for marriage after all. While marriage is a gift, it isn't designed to fulfill us. And if you're looking to it to fulfill you, like I'm prone to do, I often do you're probably just contributing to your own deep disappointment in it. And if you are a married couple and you are not able to have children, know this, your marriage is not second tier. Your marriage is not second tier. It might be according to traditional culture that says the point of it is to build society. But that's not the point of marriage according to the Bible, okay? It's it's very different. It's for witness. Mar- marriage, your particular marriage, is a post of responsibility where you, like a soldier with military orders or an ambassador, have been intentionally stationed to make much of Jesus. Okay, you've been cast to play a part in the wonderful parable of the gospel, to witness to the most beautiful thing in the universe, the love story of Jesus and his bride. Okay, Broadway has no acting roles of greater significance. Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts might get paid a heck of a lot more in their acting roles than you do to get married. But their roles, none of their gigs can be more meaningful. Okay, the role the man playing Jesus in the, 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 the TV show The Chosen is not weightier. This is amazing to see marriage as witness because your marriage, your marriage to your spouse, no matter how broken it is, has immense purpose, because your marriage is about Jesus. Your marriage is witness. Getting this right helps us get the other callings of marriage right, Okay, because only then will we be able to understand and embrace them. Marriage is witness, and because it's witness, marriage is service. Marriage is service. Most of our text actually focuses on this second calling, if marriage as witness is the big why of marriage, marriage as service is the big what. What do we do in marriage? How do we witness to Jesus' covenant-keeping love? In a word, service. The way to witness is service. Service. Every marriage has two human co-stars cast to play Specific characters in a reenactment of the gospel. Now, God doesn't hold casting trials. Instead, he's got a, he has a wedding. And at a wedding, every wife is cast to play the character of the church. And every husband is cast to play the character of Jesus. And contrary to what he might think or he might tell you, that doesn't mean the husband is divine. Or that the wife is inferior. It means that their vocation as a husband or wife is to respect the respective character they're portraying. They they are distinct assignments that are not interchangeable because the characters they're cast to play are fixed. Jesus has done certain things for us that we should never try to do for him. And he calls us to certain things that he does not promise to do for us. And marriage as service is is the big what of marriage because both the husband and the wife are called to reenact servants. Listen, husbands and wives are both servant callings. If you're married, you're in the service industry. And if you're single here and you're saying, I'm glad I got this premarital counsel beforehand, I don't want any of that. Know this, that if you're a Christian, you're in the service industry too. Because the verse immediately before our text says this of all Christians, that a sign of being a Christian, of being spirit-filled, is submitting to one another. A sign of being filled by the Spirit is service. The whole New Testament agrees with that. And so a husband and a wife should be mutually humble and mutually ready to serve each other and mutually eager to meet one another's needs and mutually building one another up. But listen, if we leave it there, as many do, we need to ignore these next 12 verses. Because these verses show us marriage as service for both the husband and the wife. But listen, not identical service. There's a difference in the way a husband and wife are to serve one another. Paul begins here with husbands and wives, but he's going to move to other relationships because this is how the gospel is fleshed out in real life relationships. He's going to move to parents and children next. Now, there are not many people who would say that those are interchangeable callings. Okay, The text will say, children, obey your parents. I know that many may act like it, but I think most agree that it's not good to reverse that order and say, or... Parents obey your children, for that is right. Like, my home would be mayhem. I wouldn't be here next week, probably. Either, either we just would go extinct, or I would be significantly injured. Uh, and I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that if we were to tell you, hey, when we preach on this in a couple of weeks at our family service, we're gonna we're gonna make these interchangeable parts. You know, we're gonna tell children who will be in here, Ch- children, you obey your parents, that's right. But, but also parents obey your. Children, for that's just as right. Like, hopefully you guys wouldn't come for that. Um, (laughs) So anyway, last time I'll say it. Both husbands and wives are called to servant vocations, but these servant callings are different. And the differences are bound to the character each is cast to portray. Okay, so as we get into the differences now, notice that Paul reminds us along the way that each part is following the pattern of the character they're cast to portray. Okay, so listen for the key words, as, or just as, because he's using those words to point to a pattern. Let's start with husbands. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Okay, what, what does this mean? Simply that the husband is the assigned leader or authority of his wife. Now, already... I think I'm in cultural hot water. Like I feel the temperature just go up. I feel the boil, do you feel the boil? And I'm likely even on the brink of losing some of you. Some people might be feeling angry or fearful or even in despair as I read those verses. And let me just tell you, if you're feeling like that, it probably makes a lot of sense. And one of the reasons is because we don't like authority. Like Each of us in this room is called to be under authority, but we don't like it. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We want to rule ourselves. This is so, certainly built into our cultural fabric to be self-governing, self-ruling. And one of the main reasons I think this is is because authority is so often abused it's so often abused. We're used to, at the very least, we're used to seeing those with authority getting all the benefits. Those with authority disadvantaging subordinates to get advantage. We, we're, we're used to that. And so there's a big challenge to our view of authority. But we need to let the Bible define the authority that it's calling husbands to embrace and not the world, because they're radically different things. A husband's authority is servant leadership. Look, look at the description of a husband's leadership a few verses later in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, this is Jesus' pattern of leadership with his bride. He loves her, and he gave himself up for her. Okay, there, there, there's a lot here. But see this, husbands, love your wives as, there's that word, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, a husband's leadership pattern is Jesus. A Jesus-like servant leader husband doesn't use his leadership to disadvantage his wife, to advantage himself. He does the exact opposite. He disadvantages himself even to the point of death to elevate his wife. We can see even more what this leadership is to look like in verses 28 and 29. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So a husband's Love and leadership for his wife is to correspond to the way one treats their own body, nourishing it and cherishing it. These words, nourish and cherish, are significant. The original word for nourish is most often used in the Bible for parents taking care of their children, providing for their needs. And the word for cherish is only used in Paul in one other place in the New Testament, and it's translated taking care of. If 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 says this, Paul says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. His point here isn't to demean the church, but to emphasize his tender care for them, to say to extent in effect, Like a mother does for her infant, I will do anything and everything for you and your good. No matter what the cost, I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. Okay, so notice the biblical picture of a husband's leadership is not of a general in an army or a king or a dictator or even a CEO. It's of a nursing mother. And if you could believe there's an even better picture than a nursing mother, there is. It's Jesus. Another part of our calling of leading like Jesus is initiation. When Jesus gave himself up for the church, he wasn't responding to the church's worthiness. He wasn't responding to the church at all. He was initiating. And we see this, if we read the whole letter, we see this in Ephesians 2 because it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And he came along and made us alive. He resurrected dead people. So he had to initiate because dead people don't initiate. They can't. So servant leadership should be one that's initiating, which means that you don't wait for your wife to be worthy to serve them. You serve her not because the goal of marriage is to make everything equal and fair in marriage. You serve her because the goal is to reflect Jesus, who is always faithful to his bride, even when she is most faithless to him. And as husbands, we only witness to the good news of Jesus as we serve our wives like he serves us. Okay, Loving, cherishing, nurturing, initiating, and dying for our bride. I think the best illustration of what a Husband service looks like is found in the upper room. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he arose from dinner and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now it's good to remember that that was the lowest task of his day because everyone wore sandals and walked on dirt roads that they shared with animals. And so that specific task of washing feet was reserved for the lowest servant on the totem pole. And yet, in the upper room, Jesus is the one initiating this very task to serve his people, his bride. Here's the thing, especially if you think that this sort of leadership will, uh, this sort of service will threaten your leadership, No one in that room questioned who was leading. They were all willingly and delightedly submitting to the one who went lowest in service. It was never less difficult to follow a leader than to follow Jesus because he used his leadership to love them and give himself up for them through service. Okay, This posture doesn't threaten leadership. This posture is leadership. Husbands, I can't get into specific application here, but please ask yourself now and as you go into your week: am I embracing marriage as service? If not, what mission of marriage are you embracing instead? And if so, in what specific ways is Jesus calling me to use my leadership to love my wife, to cherish her, to nourish her, to lay down my life for her? Okay? Think about that, pray about that, talk. To other men about that. And if you're still wondering, perhaps ask your wife, what's one or two ways I can regularly serve you better? Wives, you have a part in this real-life parable too, and your calling is also service. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then in verse 24, it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, so notice those words again. As the church, so also the wives. In marriage, the wives cast to play the character of the church, mainly by submitting to her husband. What does it mean to submit? The most simple or basic meaning is to follow. To follow uh, another's leadership, okay the command here is wives follow your own husbands, not follow all men, not follow all husbands, follow your own husband. You can say to that um, but follow him and follow him in everything, and this doesn't mean you agree with him in everything you doesn 't mean you agree with everything he does or says. it certainly doesn't mean that you follow him into sin it's probably accurate and most helpful to understand submission as a disposition okay I, I think the Call for wives to respect their husbands in verse thirty-three is really a summary that would point to this. Submission is a disposition to allow your husband to lead you. Okay, it's an inner inclination, inner inclination to follow him. It's having a heart attitude that communicates something like, "I want you to take the lead." It brings me delight when you take the responsibility, the responsibility and lead with love. I don't flourish when you're passive, and I bear the responsibility to lead. Okay, so submission is a posture that says something like that. And it's a posture that shapes our behavior, okay, to be by and large deferential to his lead. Seeing submission as a heart disposition is helpful because every husband stumbles in many ways. Every husband makes mistakes and sins and husbands ought to be the first ones to admit it and expect there to be hesitations and fears and concerns even in the most godly wife. Okay, Submission doesn't mean that your wife becomes a doormat or that uh, you wife leave your brain or your will at the door. If you struggle, if a wife struggles uh, or disagrees, they should help their husbands by letting them know after all, husbands shouldn't be satisfied with their wives following them begrudgingly. That's not a beautiful witness of the gospel. That's not how Jesus wants us to follow him. So, so you can expect this. But, but but wives, when you do share your disagreement or constructive feedback or hesitation to follow your husbands, this is what submission means. It means you do so in such a way that honors him and respects him and endorses his leadership still, even when you disagree. And verse 22 says that this submission is to be done as to the Lord, which means that a wife's call to submit to her husband is really a call to follow and trust Jesus. And so you don't need to wait for your husband's worthiness to follow him because it's not him you're ultimately trusting but the Lord who placed you in this vocation to him. And he's always and only ever been faithful to you. Okay, so, so honor Jesus by following your husband when following your husband honors Jesus. Follow your hu- uh, I'll say that again. Honor Jesus by following your husband when following your husband honors Jesus. And so if you think your husband is leading you to sin or destruction, honor him, but honor Jesus by not following him. And get help. Get help. You're in a church body. You're in a family that, that wants to walk with you. So get help if this is you, if you think your husband's leading you to sin and destruction. Monty and I often uh, talk about ballroom dancing as one of the best analogies for marriage. Because in ballroom dancing, one person needs to take the lead and the other person needs to follow. If both people seek to dance with one another and both seek to follow each other, there's no dance. But if both people try to lead, it's an absolute train wreck. So in ballroom dancing, the husband is tasked, the man is tasked to lead, is tasked to put out his hand, invite the woman to join him, to join in his dance, to follow him. It's, it's, marriage is like ballroom dancing. And, and one of the hardest things about this for a wife is that you don't know where you're going. And following is an act of trust. Like dancing, it can be scary, even very scary, depending on your husband. What a, what a responsibility for us husbands to learn how to lead our wives well. And wives, listen, dancing, uh, like dancing, submission isn't to be a duty your husband has to coerce out of you or should try to coerce out of you. It's, to, it's a gift. It's to be a gift that you offer them, like saying yes to his invitation to dance, okay? And one of the best ways for them to learn how to lead, for husbands to learn how to lead, is, is you being well aware of his awkward dancing techniques, letting them try and stumble over and over even. It may, it may look like a high school dance for a time, But know this, that when a husband takes your trust and learns to lead you well, all eyes are on you, wives. You're the one that looks most gorgeous. Think about dancing or ice skating. No one wants to see the guy lifted up and twirled. None of that. You're the one that all the eyes are on. It's hard, but when you do it and the husband learns to lead well, you're the one that looks most gorgeous. And remember, ultimately, it's not mainly His hand you're saying yes to. It's the Lord's hand you're taking and saying, I trust you. Wives, we can't get into specific application for you either today, but, but ask yourself, is my heart open to my husband's leadership? Like, like, as he is right now, is my heart open to allowing him to lead me? If so, how can I show him this? If not... What's one area of life I can open up my heart for him to lead me in? How can I communicate that to him? With both of these illustrations, most of us are likely more aware of our failures than our wins. Each of us married people really messes up our callings, don't we? Husbands, you you may be aware that nurture and cherishing are not what marks your leadership, but harshness and anger and impatience and selfishness. Maybe you don't initiate because you find yourself afraid or lazy and passive. Wives, you, do you resent your husband's leadership? Do you find yourself criticizing it and undermining it more than you do supporting and endorsing it? This is painful to see, but the Lord only shows us things like this to help us, to help you turn from the way you're treating your spouse this morning. Okay? And he doesn't want guilt or condemnation or self-hatred to motivate you to turn. In fact, that will just keep you stuck. He wants to help you by reminding you that he loves you and gave himself for you despite the ways you're failing his child, your spouse. You're his bride whom he holds fast to after all. We don't have enough time to flesh this out, but I think he wants us all to know that this is not a surprise to him. When he called you to be a husband or a wife, he knew this was going to be hard. The calling of marriage is witness and it's service, but the calling of marriage is also resistance. And that's what makes it so hard. Marriage as resistance. What do I mean? Well, it's only implicit in our text, but the Bible presumes that each of us will struggle with all those sins and struggles I just mentioned. Because listen, when sin entered the world, it ruined everything, not least the harmony of marriage. Not because it introduced leadership and submission into marriage, but because it took both of them and twisted them. It took sin took a husband's loving and humble leadership of his wife and bent it towards harsh and angry domination in some men and lazy or fearful passivity in other men. And so sin took a woman's intelligent, creative, and happy submission and it bent it towards heartless compliance in some women or manipulation or overt rebellion in others. Okay, Sin didn't create the service husbands and wives are to give, it distorted it and made it ugly and destructive. Okay, The first chapter after the institution of marriage describes that all marriages are cursed in this way because of the fall. But look, the, the service husbands and wives are called to hear in Ephesians 5 are perfectly suited to restore these exact corruptions. That's why marriage is resistance Christian marriage pushes back against the effects of the fall in the world. Okay, marriage is resistance. And as we resist the fall, we witness to Jesus, the curse crusher. Okay, or to say it another way, the better we resist the patterns of the fall in our marriage, the better we witness to the gospel in our marriages. And I want to be clear this resistance is near impossible. It's one of the hardest things we can ever be asked to do. Husbands, one of the most difficult things your wife can be asked to do is to follow you who struggle with selfishness and pride and stumbles in many ways to entrust herself and her future. To you takes a miracle. And wives, you should know the same. One of the hardest things your husband can ever be asked to do is lead you because leading you means him laying down his life. For you, a fellow sinner who's not always very inclined to follow him. So it takes a miracle for him to be like Christ and give his life for you. So we need to be very patient with one another. Because these callings on husbands and wives are weighty. They humble us. They lead us to the end of ourselves. That's, that's one of the points of marriage, to show us we're not good enough. We're not strong enough. We're not brave enough. We're broken and that's why these commands are not given to the world, they're given to Christians, because the presumption in these commands is that we don't need to try and be self-sufficient, because Christian, we of all people, are not alone. Remember from last week in the, the text we read before we got to the marriage passage, the presumption is that we're filled with the Spirit. That's what makes us Christians, and that's what makes us fulfilling these callings possible. God is the one who works this miracle, and we get to act it out. You see, at the end of the day, marriage is really all about him from beginning to end. Marriage is about him from beginning to end, but he invites us to participate. In marriage, he calls us to witness. He calls us to service. He calls us to resistance. But he knows we're a mess, and that's why he came, because we need a Savior. He came not to win a beautiful and worthy bride. He came to save a bride who wasn't worthy and to hold her fast anyway. And in so doing, make her beautiful. Okay, and that's the very pattern our marriages are designed to follow. It's the gospel. He gives us the Holy Spirit to do this. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.